This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. At Blackwater Pond by Mary Oliver. At Blackwater Pond, the tossed waters have settled after a night of rain. I dip my cupped hands. I drink a long time. It tastes like stone, leaves, fire. It falls cold into my body, waking the bones. I hear them deep inside me whispering, Oh, what is that beautiful thing that just happened? A student uh, sent me this poem in response to the letter that I sent out uh, last week. Um, As most of you know, I wrote to the Sangha saying that um, given the end of my, my marriage, I had been reflecting on a number of things. And one of them was to how best to continue my spiritual path this particular way in which I have chosen to live my life in the Dharma. And after much reflection and a number of conversations with my teacher, I decided that I would take some time off uh, from teaching and that I would step out of the monastery and the schedule so I could have time and space to be with myself so I can listen to my bones whispering having been woken up in no uncertain terms, and then going further so I could explore what it would be like to continue practicing and hopefully teaching the Dharma, but this time within a true lay life. And I came here in my early 20s, really straight out of college. I came when I was still in college uh, in response to... um, I would say an urgent search, a question. For years, I had been looking at the world and looking at myself, and there was just so much of what I saw that I didn't understand. I didn't understand why it seemed so hard to live a human life. Why I missed so much abundance, which I certainly had, and many of the people around me had. Why I missed so much beauty, and wonder, there was also so much sadness and strife. I didn't understand why, when it was clear that what, we're, what we were all searching for was to be happy, we could hurt ourselves and one another so insistently, so inevitably. But then I began to wonder, is it really inevitable? Is there another way to live? And by a series of what I can only call blessings, I found my way here to the monastery. And I've told this story before. I had signed up for the introductory retreat, and I came on the bus from Philadelphia, where I was going to school. And I got off the bus, and I walked through the gate, and I felt I'm home. And I had never felt that before. And so... About a year and a half later or so, 
Uh, I came here to live. And after a few more years, after living here and, and you could say trying on the life, I left home in earnest to become ordained as a monk. So you could say I left home in order to come home. And I did this while in a loving, intimate relationship, which was not easy. You're navigating my monastic vows, and my marriage vows was not easy. And I didn't do it well in many ways. And still, it was the reason that I took off my monastic, my monk's robes, about four years ago, in order to have a bit more balance. And so I wasn't quite uh, a monk. I wasn't a monk, but I wasn't quite a lay practitioner either. And as you know, I was here really most, most of the time. And so it was a kind of a third path. And it was good in many ways. And now I feel... I'm leaving home again in order to come back home to myself. The home that I was never apart from, but for, for years I did not know this. I didn't know that you never actually leave, um, that you're never actually far from home. Just as you never take a step without the ground rising to meet you. It never fails to meet you. So even when you feel like you've fallen flat on your face, that's still the ground meeting you. And it's really like in that koan um, that you, you must use the ground to stand up from the ground. There's no other way to do it. And so although these last few months have been difficult, they've also been uh, very affirming of my life in practice. And someone asked me if I wanted, if I wanted to continue practicing, and did I still want to sit? Yes. Yes, the answer is a resounding yes. And I've said it many times before, but I would say it even more now. Zazen is for me a a lifeline. It's a refuge. It is me lashed to that mast of my little boat, as 10-foot waves pound the hull. Or as there's just a gentle breeze and there's just staring the smallest of white caps, or as the the ocean is, is still clear as glass. There's no wind. And there I am on my little raft with everything that I need, really. And still, lately other gifts keep floating my way. Places to stay, jobs, cars, dinners, cookies. Gifts that I couldn't possibly repay if I worked as hard as I could for the rest of my life. And I was thinking that this boat is a little bit like uh, Vimalakirti's house, because it's small when you look at it from the outside. But really in it, there's, there's legion after legion of bodhisattvas. And they all fit perfectly. They don't even jostle one another. 
And they come with tools and books and songs and poems. They offer medicine, solace, company, a pair of ears, a pair of arms. And really because of them, and because of the nature of this ocean that I'm on, inevitably the tossed waters settle. That is one thing that I've learned, having been adrift at sea enough times, that if you give them enough time and trust and and non-interference, the waves inevitably settle. And even if, if it seems like they don't, there is a place in which they are still, always. And if you think of, of being high on a plane over the ocean and you look down, it looks calm, it looks like glass unmoving. And it's really when you get closer, when you get right in there that you see the individual waves with their frothy heads. So part of the work is to not get lost in the minutia of each wave, to keep the mind large and expansive where it does have a chance to settle, where it's never been anything but settled, where it is naturally still. And so when your view is large, you also remember that all of those individual waves are really ultimately one ocean. And I I confess I love that moment when you, you leave dry land behind. You know, that moment, which is, I feel a moment of awe in every sense of the word, wonder and fear and reverential respect, all of which I've been feeling lately, mixed in with a few more things. You know, that moment where there really is nothing around you but sea and air and sky. And so when without markers... You know, every possibility exists in its entirety. And where, you know, depending on what you choose, what's um, a potentiality, if you will, becomes an actuality, which leads to other potentialities that lead to other actualities and so on. And so in all of that open space, you can go in any direction. Well, maybe not any direction, since there is, you know, there is karma and there's history and circumstances, but certainly many more directions than when you are landlocked. And so that is part of the risk of going out to sea, is you have to be willing to get lost for a little while, or a long while, I don't know. And I was thinking about this, I, I was reminded of that story of those the two fishermen who, um, they're having a, a very good day, fishing, and they pull a a net full of carp, and so one of them, to mark that spot, takes a piece of charcoal and marks an X on the side of the boat. And I was thinking that I've I've been feeling that, (laughs) that impulse recently, wanting to, to paint a big, fat X on the side of my boat, on my robe, and say, you know, Z was here. Z is here still as you step, as I step into the unknown. And this is Master Dogen. 
The great master Zhao Zhou said, if you sit steadfastly without leaving the monastery for a lifetime and do not speak for five or ten years, no one will call you speechless. After that, even Buddhas will not equal you. What kind of invisible path is there between the lifetime and the monastery? Just investigates steadfast sitting. Steadfast sitting is one lifetime, two lifetimes, not merely one time or two times. If you sit steadfastly without speaking for five or ten years, even Buddhas will not ignore you. Indeed, such steadfast sitting without speaking is something Buddha eyes cannot see, Buddha power cannot pull away, and Buddhas cannot question. And this is from a fascicle called Expressions. So Zhao is saying, you know, if you sit steadfastly, silently, without leaving the monastery for five or ten years, no one can call you speechless. Because that silent, steadfast sitting is still expression. And of course the question is, what kind of expression is it? If you think of especially at the beginning of practice, but sometimes for a long time when you, if you go to visit your family and they ask what it is that you're doing, what it is that you do in Sashin, those of us who choose to, to live at the monastery or to become ordained, like why? Why are you doing that? What's the point? And I've always thought, you know, as, sometimes as challenging as, as it is, um, how powerful it also is to be questioned in that way because it really does force you to, um, to distill to the essence what it is that you're doing here and to try to explain it to somebody in the least technical terms. Why is it that you spend hours sitting quietly, doing nothing, producing nothing? And, you know, it's always been interesting to me that we don't question somebody working on Wall Street was not really producing anything either. And there's all this you know, the, you know, money, of course, exchanging hands, but it's not even money. I mean, it's just numbers on a screen, quite literally. But of course, the way that our, that our world is, is built, and certainly the way that we um, perceive gaining and achieving, that uh, seems more reasonable than sitting for hours seemingly doing nothing. And Dada used to, to love to quote Merton. I think he would do it especially during ordinations. And he would quote that passage of Merton that speaks about the monastery and, and, and that the whole point of the monastery and monastic is, is their pointlessness. The fact that, that, that we're not caught in that cycle of producing And he would say, what counts is not to count and not to be counted. Which is a little ironic, coming from one of the most famous monks, really, in in recent times. But his point was that, that that, that a a religious life, and certainly a monastic life, is um, that there's something else that drives it, and, and it cannot be measured in the usual ways. And so it is difficult, it is challenging to explain. What kind of invisible path is there between the lifetime and the monastery? 
That's what I would like to find out. What kind of invisible path is there between the lifetime and the monastery, past, present, and future, the monastery and the world? How do you leave the monastery without leaving it, without it leaving you? And not in a kind of abstract Zen way, but truly. Truly. Tadarashi used to say, entering the world without having left the mountain. And I think in one way it's the, the challenge of lay practice, or, or maybe all practice. Because every time we step off our cushion, we could say we're leaving the mountain and entering the world. Every time we, we move from, from the stillness, we could say of no thought, to engage a thought to engage interaction, relationship. We're entering the world. And so how do we do that? Bringing the mountain with us. How do we not forget where we came from? Quite literally, where each one of us came from. How do I not make the mountain and the world too? He also says, Dogen also says, walking, sitting, and lying down without leaving the monastery is the practice of no one will call you speechless. Although how the lifetime comes about is beyond our knowledge, if you activate without leaving the monastery, you do not leave the monastery. And I think how true that is, how the lifetime comes about is beyond our knowledge. Because every time I have thought, I've known my lifetime have known my tomorrow, I've been shown that, no, I don't actually know. And Shugen Roshi so often says, you know, we we assume that tomorrow will be the same as today. And there really is no evidence to support that belief other than our own wish for it to be so, which is not an unreasonable wish. We do crave and and work for continuity, for consistency. But within that continuity, how do we make room for what is inevitable, which is change? The very fabric of things is to change, to become, to constantly unfold. I was reading um, a book about um, the universe, really, about quantum gravity, and it's called Reality is Not What It Seems. And um, in it, the author quotes, um, Carlo Rovelli, quotes a philosopher, Nelson Goodman, who, who says that an object is a monotonous process, meaning an object isn't really a thing, but it's really an event. And so you could say that it's a process that is slowed down enough for a bit, for a short while, so that it appears to be unchanging. And he gives the example of a wave, of an ocean wave, appears to be its own thing. And yet, of course, it's clearly part of this vast ocean. And so Ravelli says, you know, we too are processes for a brief time, monotonous.
maybe another way of, of saying it would be for a brief time consistent because monotonous does have that implication of it being boring and I think life is many things but it is not boring and boredom in a sense is well it's lack of attention I think but it's also thinking that you do see that you do know maybe letting yourself be swept up by the world forgetting the monastery so we're not things but processes at Blackwater Pond the tossed waters have settled after a night of rain I dip my cupped hands I drink a long time it tastes like stone leaves fire And it's easy to think, you know, when the water gets choppy, that there's something wrong. Easy to wonder, you know, what if I had a bigger boat or a different one? What if early on I had taken a different route? If I'd started earlier, if I'd started later? What if I had brought more people along? Would I still be here where I am now? And so disruption, by, by definition, is disruptive. It's uncomfortable. And so it's not easy, so easy to accept that change is woven into the fabric of things. I think it's not so easy to let that freezing cold water burn. To let it sit in your gut heavy like a stone. Or to let it flutter in your belly like leaves in autumn. Like fire. And not rush to fix it. Both fix in place, but also mended in some way I don't find it easy so I think it requires um, infinite trust and infinite patience like sitting shikantaza where there is nothing to do nothing to fix nothing to focus on even and when I first started doing it it was very unsettling I found it very unsettling I would think "But, but what do I do what do I do? And often I would revert to doing what I knew and I would focus on something. I would either just bring in a koan that I was thinking about or I would focus on my breath. And my teacher very, very kindly, very patiently would say, no, no, you really trust this openness. Just be with what arises. just rest in that clear, luminous, bright mind. As Tibetan teachers so often speak of it. But how? How do you do that? I've, I've quoted Tilopa before, Naropa's teacher. Uh, there are the six, um, I think they're called the six ways of resting, something like that when he's speaking specifically about zazen. And he says, don't recall, don't think, don't anticipate, don't meditate, don't analyze. Do rest naturally in the clear, luminous, bright mind. Let the cold water burn you. Let it wake your bones. Because if you can do that, if you can 
bear the cold, bear the fire, then you do hear them whispering. What is that beautiful thing that just happened? That mysterious, frightening, wondrous thing that just happened, that is happening. There's a, a koan in the True Dharma I in which Kaoshan is saying goodbye to his teacher, Dongshan. And Dongshan says, Where are you going? And Kaoshan says, I'm going to the place of no changing. And Dongshan asks him, Can you leave the place of no changing? And Kaoshan says, Leaving is not change. How is that? If everything is change, how can there be a place of no change? And how do we get there? How do you leave? That is Dongshan's question, right? If, if there is something that doesn't move, then how can you enter and how can you leave it? And Kaoshan says, leaving is not change. Dogen says, if you activate without leaving the monastery, you do not leave the monastery. Bring down the walls, they say to me. Don't build them if they're not there. Because you don't need them. You don't, you don't need them to, to give you a sense of, of, of um, safety. Because that's not real safety. And it's certainly not freedom. And at the same time, there is the world and there is the monastery. Otherwise... You know, why, why have monasteries to begin with? Why spend five years or 10, 20 years or 30 sitting steadfastly without speaking and without leaving the monastery? So clearly there is something in this steadfast sitting, in this uninterrupted, undivided immersion, in stillness and silence and being this thoroughgoing study of body and mind. But they're also not different, the monastery and the world. Otherwise, Dogen couldn't say that if you activate without leaving the monastery, you don't leave the monastery. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a place of no change. At the beginning of the week, we were meeting about uh, Zantines, and I was telling Sean and Kian about a movie that I saw a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, called Another Earth. And I think I may have talked about it before. It's very good. We want to show it to the teens. But just the, the basic premise is that one day up in the sky, there appears another Earth. And, as it, it, and it's getting closer. And as it gets closer, it, it looks identical to our planet. And at a certain point, it's close enough that we can make contact. And so it's the precedent, I think some of like the UN or something, is trying to make contact with whomever is on this other Earth. And at a certain point, she does, and she makes contact with herself. And so you realize that what is up in the sky is, I guess you could say an exact replica, or is exactly this Earth out there. And... Um, they establish a mission for people to, to go there. And so the lead character goes and meets herself. 
And I've always uh, thought, and I've actually have carried that question actively with me since I saw that movie. It's like, what would I tell myself? Knowing what I know, if I'm face-to-face with me, what would I say to me? At the beginning of the week, Roshi, in his opening remarks, encouraged us to be serious about our awakening or to take our awakening seriously. And we speak so often of realization, of enlightenment, of awakening. And this um, enlightenment, this illuminating what, it, what is dark, doesn't happen just once, of course. And it doesn't happen completely or infallibly. It also doesn't um, protect you from your life, from yourself, from your karma. I mean, hopefully it illuminates it so that you can work with it more skillfully, but that takes time. And... And I remember um, he has spoken of this before, and, and, I, and I, I can relate because I've seen it in myself, you know, this um, sometimes so subtle, subtle wish for um, realization to, to be complete and to be some kind of ideal state in which I, would, I wouldn't make mistakes. I would be protected from myself. from the, the messiness of a human life. And for a long time, I didn't even know that, that's, that that was a wish I was carrying around with me. And perhaps sometimes, you know, the, the language, the way we speak of enlightenment and realization, perhaps that, that encourages it. But um, as long as we see it as something other than living a true human life, we will be disappointed. And I think, frankly, that if we, if we got our, our wish, that would be boring. It would be a very dull life. I, I don't know if that's... I was going to say, I don't know if that's where we're heading towards, you know, in this, this whole um, movement towards um, um, ch- transcending our biology and becoming um, more like machines. I don't know if that will actually be the result, you know, a, 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 an antiseptic life. I, I doubt it, because I'm sure that it will come with its share of, of problems. But I wonder if that's, that's a big part of the impetus for this to begin with, that somehow we will transcend our humanity, we'll be able to upload ourselves and not have to deal with our messiness and the pain of what it means to, to live as a sentient being with, with, with senses that perceives the world and feels deeply. There's another uh, poem that was offered to me also this, um, this week. 
And I'll, I'll leave you with it. <clears throat> and it's, it's called Tea at the Palace of Hoon by Wallace Stevens. <clears throat> Not less because in purple I descended the western day through what you called the loneliest air. Not less was I myself. What was the ointment sprinkled on my hair? What were the hymns that buzzed beside my ears? What was the sea whose tide swept through me there? Out of my mind the golden ointment rained, and my ears made the blowing hymns they heard. I was myself the compass of that sea. I was the world in which I walked, and what I saw or heard or felt came not but from myself. And there I found myself more truly and more strange. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.